Well, good morning. Speaking of Ruth, I've been, speaking of rooted, I should say, I've been rooted in, in Ruth the last few, um, few months. Just thinking about it, I've, um, I haven't taught, about, taught from Ruth ever in my life, and I am uh, this summer, last week, and, and this week. And it's actually been exposing some of my own stuff, issues, fears, hang-ups, um, lack of faith in my own famines, and I've been going through a few famines lately. We talked about that um, last week. So we're going to get back into Ruth right now, and um, it's great to be able to be here at our home church and open up God's Word. We're like, we're, I'm like warming you up for this long series in James with the inimitable and ever-eloquent um, Tim Mulehoff, who will be, uh, right, who will, Biola's own, who's going to be... Um, you know, taking us pretty much through the fall. So, like, I'm like, I'm like his opening act, um, <laughs> like warming him up. So, last week we started Ruth. This week we're going to end Ruth. So, and I hope you had a chance to read it this week. And just, there's so much more that I just cannot even get into. We're going to deal with a couple of aspects of Ruth that I think are really important for us uh, to understand. As I shared last week, Ruth is a small book um, couched between big books. But it's a big, small book. Um, and it's couched between like profound leader books, the, all the judges and judges, the kings and Samuel. And, and God decided that he wanted to have this book of Ruth about some ordinary people going through some really hard times in their life to help, I think, us identify with how God's word works in our circumstances um, without all the big leader stuff uh, floating around there. So last week, I, I, I spoiler alerted you that um, when the book ends, Ruth, this Moabitess, this woman from a pagan country, widowed, um, poor, um, a Middle Eastern refugee who comes to Bethlehem, uh, who has really nothing uh, from the country that the Israelites actually despise, that she ends up marrying this godly and noble man named Boaz, and they have a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David, who is crowned king of Israel. And David's lineage, as you know, goes all the way to Christ. And so even when you get to the New Testament, um, they know that. The blind man in Luke 18 says, Jesus, son of David, right? Have mercy on me. He gets the lineage thing. As a matter of fact, you could, he could even said, Jesus, son of David, son of Ruth, have mercy on me. And in Matthew 1 when the whole lineage of Jesus is laid out, begat, 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 all of those names in there, there are only four women named in that list. Two of them are prostitutes. One is the scandalous teenage mother of Jesus, and the other is Ruth. And so I'm saying this because when we get to the end of the book, it's, it tells us once more how God uses the ordinary, the unlikely to be part of his great, cosmic, epic, mind-blowing, redemptive plan. And this is where we're going in Ruth today. As a refresher, remember Ruth, the book of Ruth starts off with this family, a father, a mother, two sons. They head out from Bethlehem um, because they're hard economic times. There's a famine in the land. They go to Moab quite far away, and the hard times become harder times because this family, um, the, the husband dies, and then the sons marry these pagan women, and then one son dies, and then another son dies. So in the first five verses of this 84-verse book, you have a lot of tragedy. 
And this nice nuclear family that begins the book is left with a very scattered, um, non-normal family, a family of three widows. Naomi, the mother, and her two widowed daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. So that's how we begin. And then Naomi decides it's time to go back to Bethlehem, where she came from. And it's been at least 10 years. And she has no grandchildren. The, the, the daughters were married, but they had no kids. She goes back to um, Bethlehem. And Orpah, the one daughter-in-law, decides to stay. But Ruth decides that she would, in the words of the Bible, cling to Naomi. But not cling in a, an attachment way. Cling in a, in a devotion way. And the good thing is that, that Ruth did go with Naomi on Naomi's way back. Otherwise, that trip would have been ruthless. Um, <laughs> really? All right. Two for, oh, for two, I mean. Yeah. So as, as Ruth goes back, she's not only committed to be with Naomi, but she's even more committed to Naomi's God. She's just not following Naomi, she is following Naomi's God. And listen to the beautiful words um, that Ruth says to Naomi in chapter 1, verse 16. And I'm going to read them out of the version my father used. He read the King James Version. He was bilingual. Um, and and, and it, it, reads, it reads some like, okay, I'm 0 for 2 on that one too, all right. It reads like poetry, Chapter 1, verse 16, entreat, this is Ruth's words to Naomi, entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. And by saying this, Ruth was saying to Naomi, I'm all in, not all in and following you, but all in on following God. Because even after you die, I'm gonna be buried there. I'm, I'm, I'm not coming back. This is a one-way decision, my commitment to follow God. And, and this total commitment to God took her places that she never imagined she would go. And, and it still does. And her total commitment to God brought her through some pretty dark times in her life, and it still does. And her total commitment to God revealed the grace in a more fulfilling way than she could have ever imagined. And it still does to us today. So you have these two widows now that are taking the 10-day trek westward across the Jordan River and across the long stretch of barren land and over these 2,000-foot hilly mountainous terrains to get back to Bethlehem. And both women are, are in this really uncertain place in their life. Naomi's uncertain because she left like with a family and she's coming back with a widowed daughter-in-law. Remember what she said in verse 21 of chapter one, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And Ruth is uncertain because she's going to a place she's never been before. And she's giving up her family, her language, her hometown, her culture, her gods, gods. And she's going with Naomi back to Bethlehem. And I, and I, I often think about this whole idea of uncertainty. I've talked about it sometimes that, that we sometimes face these uncertain points in our life when we don't know what's next. And, um, and that is like, that can be really disturbing for us. I don't know if you've ever been there. Maybe you're there now. It might be with your job. It might be with relationships, marriage. It might be with um, family. It might be with money. It might be with just 
that point in your life where you're wondering like, like what is going on and where am I going and how am I gonna get there and what am I doing? Last night we had a communion service at Biola University for 1,200 new undergraduate students that are joining Biola for the first time. And um, it, was, um, it was a night when I actually talked about this whole idea of uncertainty. Because these parents and these students, they're at the threshold of this new juncture in their life. They're, 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 they're entering a new chapter. And they were, they were like filled with these raw and real uncertainties in their life. And it was a tearful communion. Our, our communion wasn't just the cup and the bread. It was the cup and the bread and Kleenex. Okay, so we had like three elements up there on the table. It was a very emotional time last night as these parents were saying Goodbye. And I talked to them last night, and I, and I think it underscores with Ruth's story that, that there are times in our life when we face some profound uncertainties. There are. And I'm facing some right now. And maybe you are as well. And our natural inclination is to want to address those uncertainties with certainty. To like, I want to know what's going to happen. I want to know how it's all going to work out. But the truth is, we can't. So the antidote to uncertainty isn't certainty because we don't know. We might think we know, but we don't know. But if you look at uncertainty through the economy of God's perspective, the antidote is another word. It's not certainty, it's confidence. And there's a world of difference between the two. Certainty means I know what's going to happen next. And confidence comes from the Latin con with fides, faith, right? We live by faith and not by sight. Confidence means I trust what will happen next. And that's why when we're in those uncertain times, we just want to say, like, how's it going to all work out? And instead of grasping for certainty, we need to to rest in confidence, that confidence that Paul talks about in Philippians 1.6 when he said, be confident, be con with feet as faith of this one thing that he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. This is what Ruth is experiencing very existentially right now as she's moving with Naomi back to Bethlehem. It was Ruth's story. She's committed her new chapter in life to God, and she knew it was going to be hard. But she made up her mind that she was going to live by faith, live in confidence amidst her uncertainty. And we read that. She says that in verse 16, Naomi, your God is going to be my God. In chapter 2, verse 12, it says that Ruth chose to follow the Lord, the God of Israel. It says, under whose wings she has come to take refuge. So when life was uncertain, she wasn't finding refuge under somebody else's cover, maybe Naomi's or someone else's. She was finding refuge in those uncertain times under the wings of God. And I wonder, I wonder if perhaps... Her great-grandson David was thinking about his, great, her, his great-grandmother Ruth when he wrote those words in Psalm 57, God have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings. You see, Ruth made a commitment that during those uncertain times in her life, she would trust in God and she would take refuge under his wings. And uncertain times, as I just said, we don't grasp for certainty, but we live in confident, being confident of this one thing, right? That he who began a good work in us, that's a promise we can stake our life on, will be brought to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So as someone is like me, I'm like prone to fears, like I'm fearful of things, um, like this is hard for me to do. Someone once told me that the eight most dangerous words in the English language are, I've got to get control of my life. 
In other words, I want to know what's going to happen next. And we get control by relinquishing control. And this was Ruth's commitment as she and Naomi arrived in Bethlehem. And so I want to see what's happening as she gets there, beginning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech. That's Naomi's late husband, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, Ruth did, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, I want you to remember those four words. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz. Well, first let me say, I, I love Ruth's attitude. Ruth arrives in Bethlehem. She's not... She's not waiting for things to happen. She's like making things happen. She's not sitting around saying, okay, I made a commitment to follow you, God, now what do I do? I'm gonna sit here and wait for you to give me like a real good job or provide some handout for me. But she picked herself up. And as menial, as trivial, as hard as that work was, she began to do what she needed to do to take care of her family. So no pride, no demands, no entitlement. Ruth just went to work doing some really hard stuff. And it was menial. She had to like bend over and scrape up the leftover barley that the harvesters left behind in order to bring home enough that they can make a little bit of bread to survive that day. And then she'd go out and do it again. Remember, Naomi's a widow she, she has no money, and, and Ruth is a foreigner, and she has no status. And, and Ruth, out of her commitment to Naomi, and I might add her commitment to God, goes to work picking up leftover barley. And it wasn't glamorous. It was hard. It was difficult. It was one day at a time. That job had no opportunity for promotion. Ruth even says in verse um, 13 that she is actually lower than a servant, and though I can't say that Ruth liked her work. I don't know if she did, but she did her work. And she did it gladly. In chapter 2, verse 7, people like were amazed at her ability to work, her, her work ethic, the diligence which she went about her day. They said this in verse 7, said, Ruth came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter so here's Ruth. She's this like new follower of God, young in her faith, and she's living this life of extraordinary commitment and kindness, and she's willing to do whatever it takes to take care of her family, the humble, the menial, the hard, uh, and, 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 and sometimes, you know, if you're at one of those places in life where life is hard or maybe the work is like a really difficult time right now, just maybe somehow you can see that God might be at work in that stuff that you don't like doing. God might be at work in the job that might not be ideal for you. That God might be at work in the mundane of your life because, because little did Ruth realize that when she was picking up the leftover barley on the ground, gleaning the fields and not doing it begrudgingly, but doing it as an act of kindness to her mother-in-law, God was at work with a bigger plan plan of his whole redemptive work that she couldn't even see. And sometimes when we're doing the regular stuff, we don't know that God's at work. And that's why I think that those four words that I drew your attention to are some of the most profound words in the book of Ruth. In verse three, it said, Ruth went out to glean the barley. And as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz. Or another version said, she so happened to come across a field belonging to Boaz. 
As it turned out, those are four of the most overlooked words in this book. Things don't turn out, but God providentially shows up. And this is what's happening here. As she gleaned in the field, she, quote unquote, happened to come across the field of Boaz, who would become her kinsman redeemer, the man that she would marry to give birth to a son named Obed, a son named Jesse, a son named David, lineage to Jesus. As it turned out, she came across that field. It wasn't coincidence. It was providence. And never mistake the two. God is at work providentially in your life, even when you can't see it, orchestrating his plan as we do the faithful and sometimes menial, tedious, ordinary, undane, day in, day out things of our life. As we live the hard and often sacrificial, sacrificial life, God is at work even when we can't see it. And it so happened that Ruth came across Boaz's field. God is at work providentially as we live out our lives daily fulfilling what he wants us to do when it's hard, when it's sacrificial, as it turned out. Paul and I recently came back from Ethiopia a few weeks or so ago. And when we were there, we saw women who had met them who had been in the sex trafficking business, had been homeless, until this organization called Convoy of Hope helped them start businesses and get their, get their feet on the ground and start, start life anew in and, and clean and respectful ways, and, and, and they did this in Jesus' name. So this woman right here, she's got the laundry business. We were in her home, and she's doing this after a long season of selling her body. And millions of people have been encouraged by Convoy of Hope, an organization I have the honor of serving on its, on its board. But the seeds of Convoy of Hope started years ago, right here in California. There's a pastor and his family, uh, and four kids, and, and, and my longtime friend Hal Donaldson is one of those kids. There's a picture of them going up on the screen now. Hal's the, the kid in the middle uh, that looks like he's the oldest there. But his father there on the left, he, he pastored a small church in the Central Valley, and about a week after this picture was taken, his father was tragically killed by a drunk driver leaving the mother and her four young children with really nothing. And as it turned out, or as it just so happened, this couple who lived in a nearby trailer park said, hey, why don't you come and live with us? So Hal and his mother and the three kids, four kids, they moved in to that simple home. And this, this couple cared about this widow and her children. And the house was crowded. The food was simple. I'm sure the children were noisy. It was probably inconvenient at times. But this couple said, you know what? Come on in. We're going to make room for you. And little did that couple know that their sacrificial and selfless act of kindness to show to this widow, similar to what Ruth was showing to Naomi, right? Was making a deep impact on these young children. Little did this couple know then when Hal and his tender heart, he wasn't even 10 years of age, was beginning to watch how they lived selflessly and how they gave of themselves so generously. Little did they know that, that their kindness to this family was moving the young heart of this boy, not even 10 years old. Little did they know that they planted this seed in young Hal that would one day blossom like a barley sprout into starting an organization called Convoy of Hope, committed to serving those who have little or nothing. This couple didn't know that what seemed like an ordinary act of kindness to people in need, the Donaldsons, 
would help rescue this Ethiopian woman and countless like her from the sex industry. Little did they know that their kindness would one day feed tens of thousands of hungry children every day. Little did they know that by caring for this widow, a generation later, millions who are ravaged by natural desires would receive AIDS in the tens of millions of dollars because they were kind to this couple, I mean, to this, this widow and her children that had nothing. And all started, this whole global enterprise of Convoy of Hope because this couple was willing to make a sacrifice that looked a lot like kindness. And it so happened that they took in this family. You know, you don't know what God is doing, the ripple effect through your kindness. Even when your life seems so ordinary and your life may seem mundane and hard and humble. And the lesson of Ruth is that God is at work fulfilling his epic plan through us as we live out our lives humbly and kindly and sacrificially. The writer of Hebrews says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And this couple who took in the widow and her four children were doing just that. And I think today to some people, Hal Donaldson's an angel because kindness breeds kindness in some exponential ways. And let's go back to Boaz to see how he is living this out. Remember, he is that wealthy landowner who noticed Ruth gleaning in the field, and he heard about her kindness, and, and this moved him, and, and, and he decides that he needs to be kind to this Moabitess woman named Ruth, so he extends kindness to her. And listen to what it looked like in chapter two. And, 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 the, and the difference between Boaz and Ruth, gender, economic, religious, uh, uh, cultural, language, nation, I mean, it's easy for us to be kind to those who are like us. Or it's easy for us to be kind to those who have something to give to us. But it's a lot harder to be kind to those who are not like us or have nothing to offer in return. And this is the kind of kindness that now Boaz is extending to Ruth. Chapter 2, verse 8. He says to Ruth, you keep gleaning in the field after my servants. You have my permission to take as much as you want. Verse 9, Ruth I have told the men not to touch you. Do you know how much that means for her, this vulnerable young woman, woman probably in her 20s, and her mother-in-law's probably in her 40s, who's, who's out there alone in the field, and she is dignified by Boaz by telling the men not to touch her. Verse 13, Ruth, I noticed how kindly you treated your mother-in-law. He comments on that. Verse 12, Ruth, you have found favor under the wings of God. In other words, I noticed that God has hand on your life. Verse 14, he says, Ruth, why don't you now come and have a meal with those that I work with? Kindness often shows up when we invite somebody to supper, someone who's not like us, someone whose story is far different than our own. So this is the kind of hospitality that Boaz is showing Ruth. Verse 16, he said, I'm going to make sure that the harvesters give you extra roasted grain to take home with you. And they do that. And Ruth goes home like, like, like burdened with barley, 22 liters she brings home to Naomi. And remember as we began chapter one last week, it said there was a famine in the land. And by the time we get to the end of chapter, it says the barley sprouts were beginning to harvest. Well, now they're not just harvesting, they're they're like overflowing. And I think that we have to understand this as one more way in which God is showering his mercy upon his people 
in ways that exceed their expectations. So Ruth comes home with all that barley, and, 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 and Naomi says to Ruth in verse 20, the Lord bless you to Boaz. The Lord bless Boaz. This man has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. So I wrote a book on kindness, and, and, the, and, the, and the title, Love Kindness, actually comes from that passage in Micah 6.8 where Micah the prophet says, he has shown you, O followers of God, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness. It actually means love kindness and to walk humbly. So we love kindness and, and we just don't do kindness in some Nike-esque way. Kindness stands out. People notice. Naomi was deeply moved by the kindness that Boaz had shown to Ruth and that Ruth had shown to her. So last semester, I was uh, at Biola walking down the sidewalk and bumped into a student, gave him a brief hello, maybe hugged him or something, and gave him a word of encouragement. And later, later someone showed me the, the Facebook he had uh, uh, posted that day. And the, and, the, and the Facebook posting said this, today, DBC, president of Biola University, put his hand on my shoulder, looked me in the eyes, and asked me, how am I doing? He smelled like flowers, though. This dog's aroma made me feel like, dang, I'm a B-OK. I'm struggling, but I can do it, just saying. Can somebody under the age of 25 please tell me? What is he saying? Yeah. I mean, I don't get it. He, he smelled like flowers, and then this dog's aroma. So I, is it flowers or is it dog? Like, which, like what should I smell like? Yeah. As bizarre as your acts of kindness may be, they, they surprise people. They encourage people. They're good to people. And it shows up, you know, you, a word of gratitude, a word of encouragement to someone who's feeling down, even when you might not know that person's feeling down. And I, I said last week that kindness is, is not a random act. Kindness is a radical life. And there's no book in the Bible that unpacks how revolutionary kindness is more than the book of Ruth. There is no character in the Old Testament that demonstrates selfless kindness more profoundly than Ruth. A life of kindness goes a long way. It's healing. And it smells like flowers. Or like, a, like this dog, whatever. It smells like something. Yeah. It actually does smell like something because Paul, do a little Bible transition here. Paul you know, talks about the uh, aromatic dimension of our lives. He says, you are the aroma of Christ. To some, it's the smell of life. To others, it's the smell of death. But you smell like Jesus. It doesn't mean that your fragrance is always going to be received, but you keep smelling like him. My father was a small-framed uh, Canadian uh, preacher. I've, I may have told this story before here, so forgive me. I do. I, I, Paul and I have this discussion. She thinks I tell stories too many times. I'm saying, like, you know, if you go to a Billy Joel concert, he starts singing, like, Piano Man. You don't go, hey, play something new. I heard that already. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, so. yeah. She says you're not Billy Joel. Yeah. Well, my father was like lived this life of like like awkward kindness at times. He would like hug the Islamic gas station attendant or pray over the the, the, the counter with the Armenian cobbler, and I'd stand at the door hoping no one would catch us in the act of talking to God. And one time he had the audacity to to to, to hold Reuben's face in his hand. Reuben was a, the Jewish furniture merchant in town. And he said, Reuben, I love you. And Reuben like, didn't know what to do. And I didn't know what to do. And, um, 
And, and so he was like, that was kind of like my, my, my father was. He didn't care if people accepted it or not. That's just the way how he's going to live his life. And I was going through this kind of self-actualization. That sounds too weird. I was going through this funk in my life, I should say. That sounds like, too, it wasn't like Buddhist. Um, um, time in my life. And I was living in Bangladesh and trying to figure things out. My father came. I was there for a year doing some research. Came to visit. One morning we were going through, uh, for a walk through the city streets. And my father said to me, there's this one passage that uh, Jesus talks about to his disciples in Matthew 10, right after he says, if you want to be my disciple, you pick up your cross, you follow me. Then he says to his disciples, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And he said, Barry, I don't fully know what Jesus meant when he said that, but this I do know, that whoever I cross paths with in my life, I have to make myself receivable to them. For how will they ever receive the love of Christ? How will they ever receive the grace of God unless I make myself receivable first? Well, at that point on our walk, everything came cascading down and I thought about the Islamic gas station attendant and the Armenian cobbler and the Jewish furniture merchant and I thought, you know what? My father wasn't being weird. He was being receivable. And sometimes when I saw my father get into the receivable mode, sometimes he was accepted and sometimes he was rejected but he was never offended because this is what a disciple of Jesus does. And sometimes your kindness may be accepted and sometimes your kindness may be rejected, but your kindness will never be forgotten because it comes from the heart of God and it remains and lingers in people's minds. And this is what's happening because Ruth made herself receivable to Naomi and Boaz made himself receivable to Ruth and kindness is oozing all over this book. And remember I said last week, if you're here, there are only two places in the book of Ruth where God directly intervenes. In chapter 1, verse 6, it said God stopped the famine and made the land fertile again. And in chapter 4, verse 13, it says God made, made Ruth's womb fertile. Outside of those two direct interventions, the rest of the book is about how God is at work in ordinary, selfless, regular people like you and me doing the simple and mundane things of our lives when we can't even see it. It's what Paul talks about in Ephesians, that somehow in our lives, God is doing immeasurably, exceedingly more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in us. So God is at work in your life right now in ways that you might not be able to see for years or you might not even be able to see in your lifetime. Just ask that couple that took in Hal Donaldson and his mother and his three siblings. Okay, we're gonna jump to the end of the book right now. So Boaz, deeply moved by Ruth's devotion to Naomi, deeply moved by her willingness to sacrifice and work, deeply moved how she lived a life without complaining without being bitter without going back deeply moved that she was someone who found her strength under the wings of God and so they marry Boaz and Ruth and they have a child and Ruth has no idea that her child would become the grandfather of David the king of Israel Ruth who was just weeks earlier scraping barley off the ground following this harvester's she marries Boaz, and they have a child named Obed. And in the uncertainty of your life, in the mundane, in the ordinary, in your acts of kindness, in your sacrifices, 
in the famine of your life, when nothing seems to be going your way, God is at work fulfilling his redemptive plan. It's like the story of Joseph, whose storyline is quite similar to Ruth's, displaced from home, right? Destitute, lonely, without a family. And God makes crooked roads straight because one day when his brothers come, his brothers who had betrayed him and come before him, he looks back and he says in Genesis 50, 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God's redemptive plan is to save lives, to set the captives free, and your story is part of it. And as you walk every day the long and sometimes seemingly uneventful road of faithfulness and kindness and hard work sometimes, you don't know how much your faithful life and trust in God's providence through the ordinary and the heartaches is part of God's epic, cosmic, redemptive plan. He is working through you. That's why the book of Ruth is smacked there between two books about leaders. It's about ordinary people like us. The book ends, chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then look at verse 17. The women in Bethlehem living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. You think, wait a second, Naomi didn't have a son. Ruth had a son. Why did they say Naomi had a son? Well, if you go back to chapter 1 from last week, verse 11, Naomi, in her despair, she says to Orpah and to Ruth, return home, my daughters. Why should you come with me? Am I going to have another son? And then remember, she, she arrived in Bethlehem, deeply grief-stricken. It says, when Naomi arrived, the whole town was stirred. And Naomi said, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And the women who were there when she said that can now say, no, the Lord has not brought you back empty. He's brought you back full, and you have a son. And Ruth, the book that begins with a famine, ends with the story of Naomi being able to cradle her grandson in her arms, Glimpses of grace and glimpses of mercy, evident that God is at work. And when Naomi lost her husband and lost her sons, God gave her Ruth. And when Ruth had no husband and sons, God gave her Boaz. And when she and Boaz married, God gave them a baby. And God makes our crooked road straight. The road unfolds in ways in our lives that we cannot even begin to script. So don't think that the ordinary is meaningless. Don't think that your work is menial when God's saying it's miraculous. Don't think that God is not at work in the trivial, menial, sacrificial work that you do day in and day out. Don't think that the darkness that may be enveloping you right now is not God saying, you know, one day I am going to explode through that darkness and shine the light of my glory. Zach and whoever's Come up and place in something spiritual because I'm going to be done just a minute here. So come on up. So the story does not end with Obed and a happy grandmother in Naomi. It doesn't end with a loving husband for Ruth and their precious newborn son. It doesn't end with Ruth's great grandson, even, David, as he's crowned king of Israel. It points even beyond that. And it points towards Jesus. And Jesus points towards the resurrection when all things will be made new. 
And it might happen for us tomorrow. It might happen when we see it years from now. It might happen beyond your lifetime when you see what God has done through your obedience. So if you are there right now in the mundane, the famine, the ordinary, you can pray the prayer of that blind man in Luke 18, Lord, have mercy on me, son of David, son of Ruth. Have mercy on me. And he does. This story that begins with death ends with life. And Ruth gives us the example to say, like, we are all in. And we're going to take refuge under the wings of God in the midst of the uncertainties of our life. God is sovereign. And it's all happening through providence and not coincidence. And when we live this way, confidence amidst our uncertainties, we can be confident, con with feet as faith, right, of this one thing, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And we will be the church that rises up when we live this way and moves forward, come what may, because we see ourselves as not just doing the motions, not just getting by in life, but we are part of God's epic, stunning, glorious plan that one day will point to the glory of God, the risen and the exalted Christ, now and and forevermore. Amen.